Good morning. Christ is risen. Well, it's good to be here. As Pastor Brent said, my wife is with me this time, and she spoke yesterday, and I've already received word that they love when my wife speaks because they understand what she's saying. So it's a good, it's good to have her with me. So I, I grew up, as, as many of you know, in a kind of hyper-church environment, went to church often, and when we went to church, we had church. We really had church. And there was, we would often have evangelists who were special speakers who would come for a few services at a time to speak to us. And the evangelists had this introduction formula they would use for their sermons. And they would say, tonight I have a fresh word from the Lord. Well, tonight, or this morning, I have a stale word for you. It's not only going to be unclear, it's also going to be old. Um, because I'm going to actually begin by stealing a sermon, which most preachers do, they just don't tell you. I'm telling you that I'm stealing this from a French Cistercian monk who was writing a thousand years ago. So this is, what you're getting this morning is vintage Advent sermon, at least in the beginning. So I'm going to start by reading a bit from this sermon. Bernard of Clairvaux, almost a thousand years ago, preaching on the second Sunday of Advent, This is what he says. We know that there are three comings of the Lord. The third lies between the other two. It is invisible, while the other two are visible. In the first coming, he was seen on earth, dwelling among men. He himself testifies that that we saw him and hated him. In the final coming, all flesh will see the salvation of our God, and they will look on him whom they pierced. Both of those are quotations from Scripture. The intermediate coming is a hidden one. So in the first and the last, he's seen. In the middle, he isn't. In it, only the elect see the Lord within their own selves, and they are saved. In his first coming, our Lord came in our flesh and in our weakness. In this middle coming, he comes in spirit and in power. In the final coming, he will be seen in glory and majesty. Now, what I love about what Bernard is saying is that he's emphasizing that we live in the presence of Jesus, not the absence. Now, if you were raised at all like I was, you were probably nurtured to believe that the Christian life now is lived largely in the absence of Jesus, who was here once and will be here again, but isn't here now. Or, if he is here now, he isn't always here now, he shows up from time to time. So in my tradition, we we believed that Jesus showed up from time to time. Most of the time, we were living in the absence But if we prayed the right prayer or sang the right song or sang it enough times or we preached the right sermon or had the right altar call or used the right olive oil when we were anointing people, he would show up. That's what we called revival, that he would break in. But the, the assumption underneath that rhetoric was that he was here, he isn't here, he will be here. And what Bernard is is reminding us is that that's not true. He was here. He went away to be here in a different way. And someday his presence will be known fully. So he was present, he is present, and he shall be present. We're not living in the absence. We're living in a different kind of presence. Luther says that he ascended so that he might come nearer to us. So I I want to begin by, by suggesting that we need to take what Bernard is saying seriously, that we're not left in his absence... 
he's more intimately with us than he was with the apostles. He's differently present, but even more intimately present than he was with them. Not as intimately present as he will be in the end. We don't see him as he is. He's with us hiddenly. He's with us in humility. He's with us, as Bernard says, in spirit and power. But he is with us. Advent is not about waiting for the return of an absent Jesus. Advent is about attuning ourselves to the presence of a hidden Jesus. He's here, just not as we expected him to be, maybe not as we want him to be, but he's here. So Bernard says, in case you think I'm inventing this, which is almost certainly your experience now with me as well, listen to what our Lord himself says. And then he quotes a passage from the Gospel of John. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him. Now, this is from that part of Jesus' last words to his disciples in the, in the Gospel of John, in which he says, it's good for you that I go away. If I do not go away, the comforter cannot come. And we often refer to that passage and assume that that means that Jesus has gone away, he's absent, and the Spirit has replaced him. Catch me sometime and ask me about the Jesse Duplantis sermon, but don't get me started on it right now. No, don't, really don't. We, we tend to imagine this as if Jesus is saying, I have to leave you, but I'll be back. But as Bernard shows us, actually what Jesus says is, I have to go away so the comforter will come. And if the comforter comes and you keep my word, then my father and I will make our home in you now. So yes, he's gone away to prepare a place for us. But as he is away preparing a place for us, he's at home with us now. So he's not away from us. We're not in the absence. He's present to us, and in that presence, he's preparing us for the fullness of his glory at the end of all things. Advent is not about waiting for him to return. It's about attuning ourselves to the way he's present now. And notice how Bernard ends what is for him the introduction to the sermon. If you keep the word of God in this way, it will keep you. If you keep the word of God in this way, it will keep you. So here, here's what I want to insist upon. Bernard is right, I think, that Christ is present to us now. He's always present to us now. We're never experiencing the absence of God. We're always experiencing his presence. In fact, between the services, someone came up to me and suggested this, and I, and I think it's right, that what we experience now of Christ's presence is, is something like the fetus experiencing the mother's presence. It's so close to us so intimate, we're so dependent upon it, we're, even, we're not even cognizant of it. And most of the time, God's presence in our life is like that. It holds us in being, and we're unaware of it, even while it holds us in being. He's not less intimate with us than he was with the apostles. He's more intimate. He's so intimate that he's nearer to us than our own lives. And most of the time, we're unaware of it. But in the midst of always being present to us, he's able to be present to us in unique ways. Now, here's what's true about the way I was trained to think about Jesus' presence. Jesus does show up in different ways. So we, we would hear sermons like this growing up, that Jesus will come walking on the waves of the storm in your life just like he walked on the waves of the storm in the disciples' lives. And we would preach these grand sermons, at least we considered them grand in the moment, right, about how Jesus will show up in the midst of your storm and calm your storm. And I think that's true. We would preach these sermons about how Jesus after his resurrection but before his ascension, appears in the room with all of his apostles, 
but he didn't come through the door. He just appeared. And they would talk about how Jesus just shows up in your life. He doesn't need a door. He is the door. He just shows up in your life when you need him. And that's true. What was untrue about those sermons is that the subtext was most of the time he's not there, sometimes he shows up. What we should have said is he's always there whether you recognize it or not. He's always working in your life whether you can sense it or not. And sometimes he shows up in ways you can see. Sometimes you experience the presence that's always holding you in being. So he can and does show up, but not because he's been gone. It's just that your attention is brought to it. Put it like this. Moses sees the burning bush. It's not that that's the only bush that's burning. It's just that's the only one he sees. God is at work everywhere, all the time, among everyone and everything. Everything is shining with the glory of God. We just can't always see it. And sometimes he opens our eyes. Sometimes he's present to us in ways we can't deny. And there's, there's one way he's present to us, and that's what I want to, to press this morning, is that there are certain ways in which he's present only as we give birth to him. Now, this is incredibly difficult to say. It's almost, almost certain that I'm going to say it in a way that is going to be misunderstood, that I'm not going to say it well enough, because it's so hard to talk about the Christian life in the way that I think Scripture wants us to talk about it. One of the mistakes we can make and often do make is that we talk as if God is the great reactionary, as if everything God does in our lives is dependent upon us making the first move, upon us getting it right or not getting it wrong. As if God is waiting for us to figure it out, and once we figure it out, God blesses us. Or once we fail to figure it out, God curses us. But that's unfaithful. God is always previous. Whether we obey or disobey, he's with us. In our disobedience, he's working to bring us to life. In our obedience, it's his grace that's making our obedience possible. God is not reacting to us. But it's also possible to make the mistake of saying that God works and it has nothing to do with how I live. That God's salvation in my life is utterly dependent upon what God has done for me. It has nothing to do with what I do for God. Both of those ways of speaking are unfaithful. Now the truth is, we have to say something like this. I contribute nothing to my salvation. What he does, he does for me. I don't earn my salvation. I don't work my way to my salvation. I don't contribute anything to it. And yet it doesn't happen without my participation. Because the salvation he wants for me is for me to share in the work he's doing in my life. So that as he's saving me, he makes it possible for me to live the life he lives, to work the work he works, to have the faith that he has, to live God's life with him. So that there's no way to talk faithfully about how God is at work in our life without talking about how we live in obedience. Not because our obedience win wins God's approval or because our obedience wins our salvation, but because our salvation takes the shape of our learning to obey, learning to participate. And there is a sense then in which there are some things that do not happen without our participation. You you remember the story of Mordecai and Esther, right? Esther is raised up at this dramatic moment to save her people from destruction, And Mordecai says to her, Esther, if you fail in this moment, if you shrink from the moment, if you don't step into your destiny, God will raise up someone else. And that's true, but there's a false comfort we can take from that. If you and I fail to step into our moment, into our calling, God will work in other ways, but what he purposed to happen through us will not happen. Something else will happen. 
Something equally good, something wonderful in a way only God can, can work it. And yet what he purposed to happen through us can be lost. And so somehow we have to take seriously the realization that the future, my future and your future and the future of the world doesn't rest on me, and yet there are some things that won't happen if I don't participate. God's work will look different if I refuse to step into my vocation, if I refuse to participate. Not only my own personal salvation or damnation, but the shape of what God is doing in the world will look different if I refuse to participate or if I participate unfaithfully. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. I'm drawn to strange and difficult text. And as my wife, I'm sure, will tell you, that's because I'm strange and difficult. And this is, a, this is one of the oddest passages in Paul's letters. Peter says of Paul, he writes many things that are hard to be understood. And this is one of the most difficult things that Paul says, I think. He's writing to the Galatians. It's a church that he planted. This is a community that he built. And they've broken faith with him. They've turned away from the gospel that he's preached to them and have taken up another version of the gospel. And if you read the letter, you can see him losing it. I mean, he's irate at one point. He calls them idiots. Wonders how they've been possessed of the devil to turn away from the truth as he's given it to them. And then in this moment, he's more like the mother who's just regained her patience with her troubled child. And she's trying to change her tone. You know that moment? I don't know if there are any mothers who've ever had this experience, right? My wife doesn't lose her temper, but some of you I'm sure do, right? And, and in that moment when you regain it and you're, you're trying to speak peacefully, you come down to the child's level and you say, now listen, listen to what I'm saying. And this is, this is what he says to them in that moment. My little children... For whom I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now what Paul is saying here, and I'm going to excavate this statement as we move along. But what Paul is saying here is that there's some things that are not going to happen among you if I don't labor. If I don't respond to your unfaithfulness by laboring for you, Christ won't be formed in you. What happens among you depends in some sense upon what happens with me, how I respond to this moment of unfaithfulness. In other words, Paul is saying, I have to be like Mary. I have to make it so that God is birthed through me. That God is birthed through me. We're comfortable talking about being children of God. But what Paul shows us is that we also have to be mothers of God. That sometimes it's not that our we're dependent upon what God is doing in our life. It's that God is dependent upon what we're doing in other people's lives. Again, there's a certain way in which that's not true because what God is going to do, God is going to do. And yet there is a way in which it is true that some of what he purposes depends upon our participation in what he wants to do in the world. And Paul is saying, if I don't mother you, if I don't go through the labor of giving birth to Christ, you will remain in unfaithfulness. So we have to be not only like Christ... We have to also be like Mary. We have to be God-bearers. And when the moment comes, we have, to, we have to be ready to give birth, to give birth to God in Christ. Now, we're not always like Mary. In fact, very few times in our lives are we in the position to be Mary. Most of the time, we're like one of the other two women in Mary's story, and I want to talk quickly about them. First, most of the time, we're in a position to be like Anna the prophetess. Anna the prophetess is an old, old woman. I picture her, I picture her a little bit like my grandmother, but without the beehive hairdo. 
right? So she's, rather, she's old, kind of leathery skinned, but bright eyed. And she's standing there in the temple the day that Joseph and Mary bring the baby Jesus to the high priest for his blessing. He's presented in the temple, and Simeon, the high priest, says, this is the hope of Israel. This child is the hope of Israel. And the destiny of all people rides on his life and death. And in the background, Anna starts to laugh because she recognizes this is the moment I've been praying for all of my life. And most of the time, that's what you and I are called to do. We're not Mary giving birth to Christ. We're not even the priest speaking the blessing over Christ as he's born. We're just the little old woman in the corner who recognizes what God is doing and we celebrate it. We just bear witness to the grace of God that we see taking place. In my kitchen at home on our refrigerator, there is a postcard and on it is a Japanese flowering tree and some notes written on the back. The story is, About almost 15 years ago now, there was a woman in our church, a young girl in our church who had suffered unspeakable injustices in her family, her life, across the course of her life. And she had finally come to college. She was a part of our church, and she was breaking with that destructive past and shedding some of those relationships that had been so abusive. And one night during the service, I happened to look in her direction, and when I saw her, I had a vision. I don't know what it is about Tulsa. It brings the charismatic out in me. I had a vision. And what I saw was a tree that had been pruned down to to bare trunk and a few branches. And as I watched it, it began to grow and flower. And I recognized that it was a Japanese flowering tree. Beautiful pink blossoms. And it just continued to grow and blossom. And I was really deeply moved. I didn't know what to do with it. And I was at a point in my life in which I didn't want to be charismatic. And so I was a little freaked out that this was happening to me. And I told my wife what had happened. And she's like, let's tell her. And I said, no, 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 no. We're not going to tell her. I'm not going to be that guy. Right. And she says, come on. And so she takes me back to her and she says, Chris has something he wants to tell you. Right. That's called the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so I told her, and she cried, and we cried, and now, almost 15 years later, just a few months ago, in the mail, we got a postcard, and on the cover is that Japanese flowering tree, and on the back, she wrote, it happened. She lives in Japan. She's a missionary there, teaches English as a second language. Now, what I love about that story is that I only witnessed it. I wasn't Mary. I didn't bring that healing into her life. I wasn't even Simeon. I wasn't speaking the healing over her life. I just stood in the background and saw it happening. And that's what we're called to do most of the time. We don't have to shape the destiny of the people around us. We just have to recognize the way that God is doing that with other people. And then come alongside those people and have the courage to say, I see God at work in you. I see the Spirit resting on you. How much weight do we really give to that kind of encouragement? Probably not enough. That some of the most important moments of your life will be the moments in which you glimpse what God is doing in someone else's life and you tell them you saw it. I saw it in you. And you can't imagine how that's going to sustain them. I mean, think about it, almost 15 years pass, and then she 
I mean, we had never discussed that again. She remembered, though. She carried that word that my wife made me give to her for 15 years. Who knows what word you're going to say, maybe reluctantly, maybe in passing, but just recognizing, I see God in you, how that's going to sustain someone. And not only like Anna, we need to be like Elizabeth. Elizabeth is one of my favorite characters in Scripture. She's Mary's older cousin. And she has, as the Gospel of Luke tells it, she's just received an astonishing word from the Lord. She's an old, barren woman, and God has healed her and given her a child. Like Sarah, she's going to give birth to a child that was impossible. Now think about it. You're Elizabeth. You're an old woman. You're a barren woman. You've given up hope on having a child, and suddenly God gives you the miracle. And you're in the midst of telling everyone about it, updating Facebook, sending emails, preparing your Christmas letter, and suddenly there's a knock on your door, and it's your cousin, this little young virgin girl, Mary, and she says, I'm pregnant with God. (laughs) You talk about trumping your experience. Like, you think you have a miracle. I'm pregnant with God. And Joseph had nothing to do with it. And what's astonishing about Elizabeth is that when Mary interrupts her life in that way, Elizabeth's first words are, blessed are you and highly favored. And then she opens her home up to her for three months. Now, you you know that Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Christ, the one who goes ahead of Christ to make his way straight. But the truth is, John could never have done that for Jesus if Elizabeth hadn't done that for Mary. John learned how to be the forerunner by seeing his mother make room for the mother of Jesus. And much of our Christian life is about being like Elizabeth more than it's like being like Mary. It's about being the people who make room for the people God is going to use to bring Christ to bear in the earth. This should change the way we think about so many things, but let me give you the example of evangelism. I think too much of the time we think about evangelism as our personal responsibility. And every unbeliever we see, we have to convert them as quickly as possible. And we're thinking that every moment is a merry moment. Every moment is me claiming them and bringing them into the presence of Christ or forming Christ in them. But most of the people you encounter in your life, you're not called to be married to them. You're called to be Elizabeth. You're called to recognize their humanity and give them a foretaste, a glimpse of the goodness of God so that when the moment comes for Mary to be present, they'll recognize it. Let me give you a couple of examples. St. Augustine, one of the great doctors of the church, perhaps the greatest. His conversion story is a rather odd one. He was born as a Christian, but quickly outgrew the faith of his childhood. He found it to be shallow and meaningless. And he began this kind of lifelong journey, trying to find a faith that would sustain him. And he moves through various religions and various philosophies. And at one point, he's a a teacher of rhetoric. And he's kind of outgrown all all that he's experienced to that point. And he's settled into being a philosopher and teaching rhetoric at the university. But he's interested in the way people use rhetoric, and so he starts attending the sermons of a man named Ambrose, who's a bishop of Milan. He's listening to this man preach. He disagrees with everything the man says, much like some of you are experiencing now. (laughs) He disagrees with everything the man says, but he's attracted to the skill of his preaching. 
And he says, I just kept showing up to hear him speak. Even though I hated what he was saying, I was mesmerized by how he said it. That's an Elizabeth moment. And when Augustine's conversion came, which came outside while he was reading scripture with a friend and he heard a little child across the fence speaking and heard the voice of God and he converts. It had nothing to do with Ambrose. But it was being around Ambrose that positioned him to have his conversion. And I wonder if, if we realize how often there are people who are just wanting to see some humanity from us, some beauty and some goodness in us. And if we're just willing to be patient with that, God will bring the moment of their conversion. But if we press it too soon, we alienate them from the very truth and goodness that they need to encounter when the time is right. I experienced this once not long after I was married with my wife in Walmart. I'm a bit ashamed to say that in public, but the truth is about me that I, I, I don't like being in large crowds. I don't like, I'll tell you these stories sometimes, but I, I get really nervous when I'm around kind of crowds of people. And of course, Walmart is crowds of people. And we're there, and I just want to get in and get out as quickly as possible. And so we've, we've got whatever we needed to get. We've paid for it, and we're headed to the door. And as we're on our way to the door, a Vietnamese man comes across our path. And I can tell he's meaning to talk to us. And so I try to give the subtle bodily language clues to him that we're not interested in talking. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be rude, but I want to get out of Walmart. And then I realize he's not coming to talk to me. He's coming to talk to my wife. And that they apparently know each other some way. And he starts talking to her and I've, I'm doing, and she's standing facing him and I'm kind of turned sideways to both of them just to subtly indicate, you know, that I'm, I'm waiting and he's speaking to her and I realize he's talking in English, but his accent is so thick and the English is so broken. I can't understand what he's saying. And neither does my wife, but Julie facing him, she kept saying, she would call his name and she'd say, say that again. I'm not sure if I understood what you meant. And so on and on and on they talk. And I, my blood pressure is rising. And I'm wondering, can I just go ahead and go to the car? I mean, I'm, I'm really trying to decide. I mean, I'm newly married, so I don't want to be too rude, but I'm also wanting out of this moment. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me. And what, what I heard the Lord say is, this man has never had anyone from this country give him their face. That when he's not talking to someone of his own tribe and tongue, People can't understand him, and so they move past him. And this is the first time someone who's not of his tribe and tongue is giving him their face. And I realized that's mostly what I'm called to do. Julie didn't say a word to him about Jesus. She didn't slip him a chick track. She didn't invite him to church. She just was human and let him be human. And I don't know his story. I don't know how he's going to come to know Christ and when that encounter is going to take place. But I do know this. When he encounters Jesus, he's going to realize somehow that that's what he was glimpsing for just a moment in that conversation with her. Because when you brush up against that kind of humanity, when you see it in its fullness in Jesus, you remember, I had a sense of this before. And that's what we're called to do in people's lives. Give them a sense of what Jesus is like so that when they see him, they recognize they recognize. But sometimes we are like Mary. 
A few times in your life, a few times in my life, the moment will come in which I'm not just Anna and I'm not just Elizabeth. I'm Mary. And Christ has to be born. In that second way that Bernard talked about, Christ has to be born. And this is what Paul is talking about. And it's a strange saying. He says, my little children, I am in the pain of childbirth again so that Christ may be formed in you. Notice first, I'm in the pain of childbirth again. Now, this is not how childbirth works. You have a child. You can't have that same child again. And yet Paul seems to be saying that. I've already birthed you. He calls them my little children. And yet there's a way in which all that I've worked to see happen in your life has been lost. You're still mine, but what I meant for you, you've lost. And so I begin again to give birth to you. Genuine care for one another is a succession of failures. But faithful ministry, faithful care for one another is refusing to let the failure have the last word. If we really love one another, if we really care for one another, we're going to over and over and over again see all that we seem to have worked for reduced to dust. But if we believe in the God who raises the dead, if we believe in the God who does the impossible, then we come right back to that moment and say, yes, it seems like that was all wasted and lost, but I'm beginning again. I'm in the pain of childbirth so that Christ can be formed again in you anew. We have to have that kind of tenacity. We have to face what seems like the failure of our work with the courage to do the work again, over and over and over again. Another strange aspect of what Paul is saying is that he's in labor and Christ is being formed in their womb. Again, that's not how pregnancy works. It's the one who's carrying the child who labors. But Paul says, no. Actually, in the body of Christ, what God is doing in your life depends upon my work, and what God is doing in my life depends upon your work. We're so bound up together, so much intimately connected, so intimately connected that what God wants for you, he won't give you without me. And what God wants for me, he won't give me without you. Channeling my Tulsa charismatic again, I'll tell you this story. So one night I I had preached a sermon and a man came up to me and he was weeping. He wasn't weeping because of anything I had said. He was just waiting until I got finished to talk to me. And he, he came up and he said, I have to tell you something. I had a dream last night. And in my dream, there were two old Christians, a man and a woman, a man and a wife, who belonged to an underground church in China. And they appeared to me in my dream and told me to tell you that God had given them your name and required them to intercede for you. What kind of God is this? That he knows I need intercession, but he doesn't just ask the people who know me to intercede. And, I, and then he has someone have a dream about me. And then to tell me that story. To draw my attention to the fact that I don't know where my debts lie. I don't know why I believe. Why do I believe and not lose faith? Why do I obey and not disobey? How do I remain faithful? It's not because of my strength. It's because there are people who are holding me. And most of those people I don't even know. I don't know where my debts are. At the end of all things, when we see God face to face, one of the realizations we're going to have is just how much others have carried us to that moment. How often other people we didn't know carried us to that moment. We don't know our debts. And Christ 
is formed in us because of someone else's labor. And Paul is saying to them, I'm in that labor again. And then he says, I'm in the pain of childbirth. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the church has always taught that Mary's birth was painless because the child in her was not conceived in sin. There was no pain in the birth because the curse of pain in birth was related to sin. But Paul insists, in this case, I am in pain. Because bringing Christ to bear in the earth is painful. And here's why, and I'm ending with this. When we talk about birthing Christ and seeing Christ formed in people, we're not talking about people being converted. One of the problems in many of our churches is that we think of ministry as if not solely, at least primarily, about getting individuals to convert to Christianity. But that's not what we're wanting. I don't just want people to decide to become Christian. I want Christ to be formed. Those aren't necessarily the same thing. You can have one and not have the other. And too much of the time, the work we do, we do just to get people to say the sinner's prayer or just to join the church or just to raise their hand at the end of a sermon or just to attend and give tithes. And we don't actually labor through until the kingdom comes. And when the kingdom comes, there's difficulty. Do you remember what Simeon said to Mary? This child will be the cause of the rise and fall of many. I mean, Jesus, when he comes the first time, is killed by the powers. A collaboration of the temple and the Roman occupants, because they're threatened by Jesus. Because when Jesus shows up as the King of kings and Lord of lords, all the other powers of this world recognize that they're being called into question, and they resist it. When we get people to convert to Christianity, there's not much of a ripple effect. When you get people to live the kingdom life, there are principalities and powers that are at war against that. And if we're going to bring Christ to bear, we have to expect that it's going to be painful. Now, I've saved the most controversial thing I'm going to say until this moment. And I'm about to head to the airport, so I'm going to say this, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to disappear. But the turmoil that we're experiencing, Ferguson, New York City, the racial tension that is here, that plays out on your Facebook page, plays out in your family discussions on the holidays, is a reflection on the fact that the church has not brought Christ to bear. We've been satisfied with getting people to become Christians. We've not given birth to the kingdom. And I'm not interested in the politics of left or right, but I am interested in the politics of the kingdom. And where the kingdom of God is present, both the left and the right are called to repentance, and both the left and right are called to healing. And what we need to do is recognize that the time has come for us to labor until Christ is formed in our communities. There are far too many of us, whether we realize it or not, who have given up on actually bringing the kingdom to bear. We're just wanting people to know Jesus and not go to hell. But we're meant for more than that. We're meant to be the kind of people who bring the peace of God to bear on the earth. Not the peace that's going to be at the end of all things, but a glimpse of that peace. We're meant to bring justice to bear. Not the fullness of justice that's going to be in the end, but justice nonetheless. And we have to work for that. And if we don't work for that, it won't happen. If we don't go into labor for these things in this community, in these families, it won't happen. God will have to raise up someone else from somewhere else to do the work. But if we will, 
recognize that if we will labor, Christ can be formed, not just in the lives of individuals, but in our communities, in our culture. We're not going to win America back to God by changing a political scheme or by voting differently. But if we labor in prayer and faithful witness, if we learn how to be human with our neighbors, if we learn how to model forgiveness, if we know how to live the Christ-like life wherever we are with everyone we encounter, we can birth Christ's kingdom in the midst of our world. And when we do, and when we do, we bear witness to that third coming in which he sets all things right. Stand with me, if you will. In Romans chapter 8, Paul pictures a threefold groaning, a travailing of birth. He says that the creation is groaning. All creatures are groaning, waiting for Christ to set things right. And he says the spirit is groaning, travailing, trying to birth Christ in the world. And then Paul says, and we groan in the spirit. And what I want to call you to this Advent is to the groaning and the travailing of birth. The cry of the world and the cry of God is that Christ's kingdom will be established in the world. We need to groan with him. We need to enter into the labor pains until Christ is formed. Father, I pray that you give us the strength to do that. Let your spirit rest upon us so that like Mary, we can give birth to your son. Amen. Pastor Brent. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.